Uh, before we get too much further into it, just want to announce that the uh, GROW classes for discipleship are done for right now. And uh, be looking. There's going to be a sign-up sheet if you're interested in that, a sign-up sheet for the next discipleship class. And when that's going to be starting and everything, you can get some information then. But the GROW classes for discipleship are done now, and they'll be starting up again here after a while. And look for a sign-up sheet on that. So Genesis chapter 3. And uh, let's do the smart thing and just have a quick word of prayer here before we uh, get ready to talk about this subject tonight. Uh, Heavenly Father, once again, just prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts for uh, just what you have to say tonight. Um, help us to see what you went through. Help us to see, Lord, the sufferings and, and the reason behind that, Lord, as we come here tonight to uh, uh, focus on your death and what that death meant for us, how that death brought us a life. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for what you're doing. Just pray the Holy Spirit would guide and teach in all ways, Lord, in your name. Amen. Now, generally out here, you know, we don't do a lot of uh, topical messages. Generally, when we get around Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter, we'll stop and kind of talk about some of these things. This, of all the services that we do out here at Harvest, um, Excellent Wednesday, as we like to call it, uh, the Wednesday here before Easter, this is probably, and I'll use this term lightly, the most somber service message we have, because this is a service, a message totally focused on the idea of Christ's death on the cross. That's why we're here tonight. Now, sunrise service, other than the time being early, will be fun on Sunday. Easter is always fun. But tonight is really one of those times where you really have to stop and talk about the idea of why did Christ have to die. Now, what we're going to do with this is it kind of goes back to a message that we actually did around Christmas of last year. One of the things that we talked about Christmas was we always talk about the birth of Christ, obviously, with Christmas. But the phrase we kind of focused on, and we went to the book of Mark on this for Christmas, was this phrase, born to die. That Jesus from the beginning was born to die. That's, that's why he was here. He was born for his death to come and to bring salvation to us. Well, I want to go back even one step further, even being before born to die. I want to go back to the absolute first prophecy in the Bible. The first prophecy in the Bible, and I believe this is important, because when you start talking about prophecy in the Bible, this really is what separates Christianity from all the other, and I'll use this term lightly, religious books of the world. You know, a lot of times people say, well, what, what makes the Bible special? What makes the Bible unique? And my response to a couple of those things is, number one, what makes the Bible unique is the Bible presents mankind at its worst. If man was really writing a book about man, we would not air our dirty laundry like the Bible does. The Bible spares no detail. But number two, what separates the Bible from all the other religious books of the world is the Bible is full of prophecy. That's one of the things that God has done, is he says, hey, you want to know that I'm God, the way I will prove to you that I am God is I will use prophecy to prove to you that I can do this. And I just want to share this verse with you real quick. It's out of Isaiah 45, Isaiah 45, verse 21. It says, who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? He's saying, who's the one that predicts the future? He goes, it's me. He goes, the other people can't do that. He goes, only I can do it. And I find that's interesting. One of the ways that God proves his deity is he says, I am the God that sees the future. So when we think about this idea of prophecy, what's the first prophecy given in the Bible? Well, the first prophecy given in the Bible is actually found in Genesis chapter 3. So you're in Genesis 3. We all know the story. We'll just go through it real quick. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Eve is deceived by the serpent. So they go and they eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then you have this idea here of the out that they ate. Sin has come into the world. Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Great spiritual point there. What do we do with sin? We always try to cover our sin up, don't we? 
We try to do whatever we can to cover our sin up. And so Adam and Eve sinned. They knew they were wrong. So what do they do? They try to cover themselves up. Hasn't this been what man has tried to do for thousands of years? We try to cover our sin up with something. Well, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Verse 10, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And I find that verse very interesting in verse 9 of where are you? J. Vernon McGee makes an excellent point about this. He goes, so often in history we see man's attempt to search for God. He goes, really, it's backwards. Man doesn't have to search for God. God's looking for you. God desires a relationship with you. Hence verse 9. God is saying, where are you? Now, he's not asking where are you because God really couldn't find them. They're not playing hide and go seek here. God knew exactly where they're at. The point was God was making a point. They knew that they were wrong. Verse 10, fear, they hide. What does sin do to us? Sin, verse 7, we try to cover up our sin ourselves. Verse 10, sin keeps us from God. Hence, verse 9, where are you? Come on, we've all been in that position. I don't want to hear the teaching. I don't want to do devotions. I don't want to go to church. Why? Because I am convicted. (laughs) I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk to the pastor. I don't want to talk to that guy from church. I don't want to talk to that girl from church. Why? Because I am convicted. And so therefore, what do we have in verse 10? We hide. We try to hide from God. Verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded for you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Now, if we had more time and a different teaching, we could talk about how verse 12 is the first example of passing blame. And isn't that what we do with sin too? Verse 7, we cover our sin. Verse 10, we're afraid because we know we're wrong. Verse 10, we hide from God. And then verse 12, we pass the buck. Oh, we are good at this one, aren't we? Well, I wouldn't have got upset if you wouldn't have done that. Well, I wouldn't have responded that way if she wouldn't have said this. Or you know what? They pushed me into... No, verse 12. 6,000 years ago, someone was trying to pass the buck already. Human nature, we pass blame. Verse 13, Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Verse 14, So Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 15 of Genesis 3 is the first prophecy in the Bible. And I will put enmity... Now, that's a word that we do not use very rarely, if ever, in everyday conversation. Some translations actually translate it, I will put hostility. That is not a strong enough word. That word literally means, I will put hatred. Hatred between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first prophecy in the Bible is in verse 15 of Genesis 3 because why the sin problem came and because the sin problem came, there is now this hatred struggle between good and evil. That's where it comes from. Where does this idea of good and evil come from? It comes from Genesis 3 verse 15. God's people versus Satan's people. That's the struggle from the absolute beginning. That's what it is. And this is the thing that happens a lot. We have this phrase that we like to throw out there about people being children of God. We talk about that a lot, this idea of children of God. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 1. Let's build on this for a second, because this is kind of an interesting passage here. This idea of the struggle between your seed and her seed, between good and evil here. Let's go to John 1. 
John 1. It says in, as you're going to John 1, it says in John 8, 44, it says, you are of your father the devil. That's a pretty strong statement to say. You are of your father the devil. Which means that this Satan has followers himself. So there are people that are choosing to follow that. So you are of your father the devil. Well, in John 1, let's go ahead and pick it up here. Oh, let's say right around um, verse 9. John 1, verse 9. It says, That was the true light, note capital L in my translation referring to Christ, which gives light to every man coming to the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what is a child of God? A child of God is one who has accepted Christ as their Savior. Verse 12. Now, once again, I know we like to throw that phrase around, that everybody is a child of God. The truth of the matter is we're not all children of God. I hope that everybody here tonight is a child of God, but the truth of the matter is I don't know if you guys are a child of God. A child of God is someone, according to verse 12, that has believed in Jesus Christ and accepted him as Lord and Savior. That's a child of God. Well, if you're not a child of God, the Bible says you're, your father is the devil. Now, people don't like that because there's this whole black-white thing. But what happens is we like this gray area. Yes, I believe that people are saved. Yes, I believe that there are people that are, are not saved and a, their father is the devil. But, but there's this whole middle section of people that just, you know, they're, they're pondering, they're thinking, they're wondering, they're seeking. God says, no, there's not a gray area in Christianity. It's, it's the black and the white. And this idea of you are either saved or you are not saved. And so when it comes back from Genesis 3.15, and it says so clearly... Between your seed and her seed, there are two groups of people in the world, those that are saved and not saved. Note, Genesis 3.15 does not say between your seed and her seed and that middle ground that's seeking. There's a black and white here that goes on to this idea of you're either saved or you're not saved. And so the first point that we have to make here is this idea of what does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean to be of the seed of God? That means you've accepted Christ as your Savior. I know this is a pretty elementary Christian point. But don't you find it interesting that the first prophecy given in the Bible had this clear separation? Either saved or you're not saved. So now that we got that, let's build on this a little bit more. Go to Galatians chapter 3, please. Galatians 3. Let's talk about this idea of seed for a second. This idea of seed. Galatians 3. So we now have the two groups of people. Your seed and her seed. John 8, 44, father of the devil. John 1, 12, children of God. There's only two groups of people in the world. You're either saved or you're not saved. And once again, some people may say, well... They may not be saved. They're not making a conscious choice to follow Satan. If you're choosing not to follow God, there's only one other option. So let's talk about this idea of what does it mean for the seed. Well, look in Galatians chapter 3. Let's go ahead here and um, look at verse 19. It says, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed. Once again, my new King James has seed capitalized there till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. See, there was a certain time that the seed was supposed to come. Well, the seed came, what we call Christmas. The seed died now and the seed is resurrected. This is the seed that was promised, verse 19. Now, how was it promised? Well, it was promised because of Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy in the Bible, the promise of the seed that was supposed to come. Well, what is this seed supposed to do? Well, jump ahead to Galatians 4, look at verse 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. See, you're born into sin, I'm born into sin. And so therefore, we're in bondage to sin. Romans 6 comes right on and says that you were a slave to sin until we're saved. 
Now, once again, you live with people, you work with people, if you'd go to them and say, hey, you know, you're a slave to sin. I'm not a slave to sin. They don't even realize they're a slave to sin. They're in slavery, they're in bondage, and they don't even realize it. What are they in bondage to? To verse 3, the elements of the world. Come on, if you can remember back to before you got saved, can you not remember the bondage that you were in? Some of it may have been pretty straightforward, the classic sin stuff. You were in bondage to the drugs, the alcohol, the, uh, the inappropriate lifestyle. Brothers, it may have been you were in bondage to, I don't know, fear of death. You're in bondage to your tongue. You're in bondage to uh, gossip. You're in bondage to greed. You were in bondage to something. In fact, Paul said what got him, what finally made him really realize that he was a sinner, was this idea of covetousness. Something you were in bondage to. Hence Galatians 4, 3. But look at verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, what's the fullness of the time? Genesis 3, 15, the prophecy we just read. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son, and your hearts crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son and an heir of God through Christ. See, how did we become set free? How did we become to have this relationship to cry out in verse 6, Father, or literally translated Daddy? How did we come to verse 7 to be set free and to have a relationship with Christ? It all comes back to what? Verse 4, when the fullness of the time had come. Well, when was the fullness of the time? Once again, what we call Christmas, Christ being born. But what was that fullness? Genesis 3.15. The first prophecy in the Bible. Isn't it fascinating that the first prophecy that God gives in the Bible is everything you need to know about salvation? It's everything you need to know. That there's going to be two groups of people. Your seed, her seed. Those that are saved, those that aren't. That this is going to come sometime. That this promise is going to be fulfilled. Well, we just read that in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4. That this promise is now fulfilled. But what is the promise? Well, this is what we're here to talk about tonight. Jump back now to Genesis 3.15. What is going to happen? Well, we've already talked about the struggle between you and the woman, the hatred of good versus evil. We've talked about between your seed and her seed, those that are saved and not. But what's going to happen? He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What is that talking about at the end of verse 15? That's death. That's what we're here to talk about tonight, is the death. So, back to our Christmas message. Jesus, from the time he was born, he was born to die. Well, from the time that Time began, the first prophecy in Genesis 3, he was prophesied to die. Talk about a burden on your shoulders. Born to die, okay, well, you know what? That was his calling, that was his mission. But even before that, Christ isn't born for another 4,000 years here after Genesis 3. It's already prophesied this guy's going to die. He's going to bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, keep your hand here on Genesis 3.15. Jump ahead to Isaiah 53. Because there's two verses here that if you take notes in your Bible and you like to mark things and underline, this is one of those that you put the little reference thing beside. Go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible on the death of Christ and what that means for him to die. Isaiah 53. Well, Isaiah 53 makes it abundantly clear here in verse 4. Surely he, meaning Christ, has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, that we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But as he was wounded for our transgressions, and look at the second part here, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
The reason we are here tonight is because of verse 6. God laid our sin on Christ. God laid our sin on Christ because back in Genesis 3.15, it was prophesied that's what's going to happen. The only way we could have this struggle, this hatred, this, this conflict to be resolved is through Christ to die. And just as Genesis 3.15 said, the heel will be bruised, well, Isaiah 53.5 says he was bruised for our iniquities. I think it's important to note that the serpent's head is bruised. Christ gave a death blow to sin and to the enemy. Jesus got his heel bruised. Jesus was not defeated. And this is, this is a valid point that has to be reiterated, and some of you know this, but this has to be so vitally important to understand Christ on the cross won the victory. Death did not defeat him. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. The three most important words that have ever been spoken is, it is finished. I heard a pastor say one time, it's not to be continued. It's done. Aren't you glad that the whole idea of salvation is finished? Aren't you glad that sitting here tonight you don't have to earn God's merit, grace, and love? Aren't you glad that the idea of salvation is not still a work in progress? I hope God gets this salvation thing figured out before I die. I hope God doesn't change his mind. I hope it is finished. It's, it's done. It, it's completely done. It is finished. And so therefore, since it is finished, what are we worried about? It's done. It's complete. The, the heel has been bruised. Yes, that's the death of Christ. But the head of the serpent's been bruised because of what Christ did on the cross. And that's what that prophecy is telling us, is from the beginning, this is what had to happen. From the beginning. He wasn't born to die. He was prophesied to die for thousands of years. That is what we're here tonight to talk about. And so it is completely finished. So when I see somebody get caught up in the world, in the emotions of the world, in the emotions of the situation, I like to remind them, what did Christ say on the cross? It's finished. So what, what are we worried about? Well, I'm worried about, you know, I got this big thing at work. I'm worried about the bills. I'm worried about the relationship. I'm worried about my health. No, no, no. You're not worried about any of that because it's finished. It's done. It's complete. And those three little words are what gives us a peace today to know that Christ took care of it. I think nearly every time we get together on the Wednesday before, um, uh, the Wednesday before Easter, I use this example. Anybody, anybody could have died for the sins of the world on the cross. The only difference is Christ's sacrifice was accepted. And his sacrifice was accepted and proven Sunday morning by the empty tomb. I could get up there and say I'm dying for the sins of the world, but it's not going to be finished. It won't do a single good. Christ was the one that had to do it. He's the one that said, my heel will be bruised, but I will bruise the head of the serpent. So whatever you are facing today, whatever struggles you brought into tonight, whatever baggage, whatever burdens, whatever sin, whatever emotion, whatever it is, it's finished. It is done and completed on the cross. There's nothing more to be added to it or taken care of, and so therefore it is finished. What a beautiful picture that is. Jump back now to Genesis 3. Why did it have to be the cross? Why did the heel have to be bruised? Well, look in Genesis 3. So he goes through this in verse 16. He talks about the uh, curse that's going to be on the woman. Verses 17 through 19, the curse that's on the man. Verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now you've heard us teach on this before, but verse 21 is a very vital point. See, what happens is, go back to verse 7. When you and I sin, we try to cover the sin ourselves. God says the only way your sin is going to be covered is verse 21. Something's got to die. Isn't it interesting? The first death that happened happened because mankind sinned. You know, we know from studying out the Bible that up until this point of verse 21, this idea of death wasn't there. So this idea of death 
Adam and Eve didn't understand that concept. And so now that they sinned, and now these cute little fuzzy creatures that they used to have Bambi moments with, that they all could come up and sit, are now cut open, bleeding out, dying, because of what one man and one woman did. And they had to be covered in that blood and that skin. Well, same thing happens today for you and I spiritually. We killed Christ. I mean, we're, we're here tonight in, in a very unique position. In one way, we're here in a somber moment to understand what Christ did on the cross, but at the same time, and I'll use this word, we're here to celebrate his death. The death that I caused. Just like in verse 21, Adam and Eve caused the death of those animals and God had to cover them up because of their sin. My, my sin caused the death of Christ, but aren't I thankful that God covers me up in Jesus? I'm covered in Christ. And that is such a vital, important point. And this is something that Jesus knew. He knew why he was coming. And like I said, when we talked about on the Christmas message, about this idea to be born, to die, Jesus knew why he was here. He knew completely what his calling and purpose was. Mark 8, verse 31, it says, And he, meaning Christ, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. That's the whole Easter week right there in one verse. Or as Genesis 3.15 would say, Son of Man has to get his heel bruised. And how does he have to get his heel bruised? Because you and I sinned, and that's why we're here tonight, is to honor his death, his sacrifice for your sin and my sin. But the problem is, he has to be killed. But the most important part of that verse, verse 31, is after three days, he rose again. He rose again. See, this is what we're going to talk about Sunday morning. Is we're going to talk about this idea that the tomb's empty. I always like to remind people, it's finished. And every now and then I like to remind people, hey, the tomb's empty. What do you got to be worried about? The tomb's empty. Yeah, but what about this? No, the tomb is empty. If Christ defeated death, don't you think whatever you're facing tonight, he can take care of too? If he can say on the cross, it is finished. If the tomb is empty, what really are we facing tonight that is that horrible and that big that we cannot get through without the power and the help of God? He moved the stone. The tomb is empty. It is finished. The head of the serpent's been bruised. It's finished. And tonight is the first night to honor that. Now, the beautiful part about this is it just keeps getting better and better. It starts out a little depressing tonight, but by the time you get to Sunday morning, the tomb's empty. And by the time you get to the 8.30 and the 10 o'clock service, he's rose and he's resurrected, and there's this great celebration. You know, we get to sing, Up from the grave he arose. That's great. But before the tomb could be empty, and before he could rise from the dead, he had to be bruised. And that's what we're here tonight to do. Last thing I want to say here before we get into communion, I'd like you to turn, if you will, to um, Isaiah 49. Last passage I'm going to say about this. This is a passage I want you to think about as we get ready to partake in communion. Communion is one of the few times in the Bible where God says, I want you to look back. Because God is always saying, look forward. Look forward to my return. Look forward to being a new creation in Christ. Look forward to, to what you have done. Because the problem is, if you look to your past, we get depressed and discouraged because every one of us here tonight brought something in from our past that we wish wasn't there. The choice we made, words that were spoken, things that we did. God says, I don't want you to look at the past. You're a new creation in Christ. Look forward. But communion is one of the few times in the Bible where God says, I want you to look back, what I did, but also look forward at the same time. I heard a pastor say one time, communion is the closest we get to being at the cross. It's the closest we get to really understanding what Christ went through. Because this idea of the body broken for you, the idea of the juice, the blood that was shed for you. But what was going through his mind? Look at Isaiah 49, verse 14. Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. How many of you have ever thought that way? God's forsaken me. God's forgotten me. I, I don't know how many times I hear this. If I pray, nothing changes. If I pray, nothing 
nothing happens. Everything I pray for doesn't happen. God's forsaken me. God's forgotten me. That's Ecclesiastes. We just got done studying Ecclesiastes. You know that. That's that Ecclesiastes moment. Woe is me. My life is miserable. I got the worst life in the world. No one cares. No one understands. Look at what he says, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. Look at verse 16. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Wow. That's one of those goosebump verses. God says, I haven't forgotten you. How do I know I haven't forgotten you? I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. I, I don't know about you. My, my wife is one of the most intelligent women I've ever met. She's one of the most organized women I've ever met. I've never seen a guy do this. This is a gal trait. She writes everything on her hands. I, I, carry, I carry around my little dollar planner with sticky notes. And I got my pen so I can write stuff down. It's to me, but women, uh, we'll be going somewhere and Dawn's like, I got to pick this up. Pen, take. She just writes it on her hand. Now, why does she write it on her hand? God bless my wife. She forgets every list. Half my life has been spent going out of Walmart, back to the van to find the list to come back in. So now she just writes this stuff on her hand. But why do you write it on your hand? Because that's where you know it's going to be at. You know right where it's supposed to be. Isn't it a beautiful thing to know when you feel forsaken, you feel forgotten? God says, no, verse 16, you're on the palms of my hand. I died for you. Those nails that pierced my wrists and hands were pierced for you. The blood that was shed was shed for you. The, the bruising that he went through was for you. So when you like to feel forsaken, forgotten, no one cares, no one understands, the world doesn't like me, everybody hates me, God says, no, Isaiah 49, 16, verse 15 Yet I will not forget you. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. That's, once again, one of those refrigerator verses. If you have a tendency, and let's just be honest, to let depression and discouragement and despair get the best of you, you need to write this verse down, stick it on your fridge. If you have a tendency to allow situations of the world to bring you down, and you can get caught up in the emotion of that, and you get caught up in that, it's never going to change, nothing ever works out, it's always bad, you need to write down Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16, and constantly remind you that you are written on the palms of God's hand, because he loves you. And that's what we're here tonight to celebrate. To celebrate the death of Christ, because the first prophecy in the Bible it's a prophecy that he was born to die. And thankfully, he came to die for you and I. So as you go through the rest of tonight and you get ready for Easter, yes, Easter is a, is a fun holiday. There's no doubt about that. The tomb's empty. He rose. But the only way the tomb can be empty is he had to die first. And that's what we're here tonight to celebrate is what Christ went through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get ready here for communion, Lord, I just think about once again what, what just that means and represents, Lord. You, you were born to die. You were prophesied to die. Lord, you did this all for us. Lord, your heel was bruised for us. Lord, our transgression, our sin for us. Lord, we hide from you. We cover our sin up. We pass blame. And you just die. And Lord, you did it for us while we were still sinners. You died for us. And, and Lord, it's finished. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for we don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. You just love us, Lord, your grace, your mercy. And Lord, as we get ready to partake of communion, I just pray this scripture, Lord, where it says, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxiety. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, your word says, as we get ready to partake of communion, to examine ourselves. Lord, and as we examine ourselves, Lord, we see the sin that's in our life. Reveal that sin to us. Show us those areas that need to be changed. 
And as we come to you, Lord, we pray that we'd have a softened heart of repentance. Lord, that we would look at what you did for us, your death on the cross, Lord, to take away the sin we battle now. We give you our anxieties. We give you our worries. We give you our burdens. We give you all of our struggles. Just in the name of Jesus, we pray for your forgiveness, your love, and your peace that only you can give. Let us go quietly now just before the Lord and open our hearts up to him.